Picture this. Michael Jackson once approached Beatles superstar Paul McCartney and asked him how to maneuver the music industry. Paul explained how lucrative music publishing rights were and advised him on the financial value of owning the rights to your own music and even those of other artists. Before I continue on with the story, let me explain the economics behind the music industry. Every time a song is used for commercial purposes, like in a movie or an advertisement, the party using the track must pay a licensing fee. Before I continue on with the story, let me explain the economics behind the music industry. Every time a song is used for commercial purposes, like in a movie or an advertisement, the party using the track must pay a licensing fee. That money goes in part to the record label, which pays a portion to the performer of the song. Another part of the licensing fee goes to the songwriter. So where was I again? Oh, that's right. Paul and his frenemy, John Lennon, signed publishing agreements with Northern Songs Limited. Later on, the company was bought and Paul and John both pulled their contracts. This meant they lost the rights to their own music. So Paul, naturally, goes to buy back the rights to his music when all of a sudden, Michael Jackson swoops in and outbids Paul for a measly $47.5 million, Michael is now the proud new owner of 251 Beatles songs, including Hey Jude, Yesterday, and Let It Be. Needless to say, Paul McCartney was pissed and even quoted saying, I think it's dodgy to do something like that, to be someone's friend and then buy the rug they're standing on. The two celebrities barely ever spoke again. This brings us to the modern age of music ownership. From MP3s to NFTs, online ownership is plagued by piracy and copyright logistics. Jackson and Shkreli are just a couple examples of how artists can be taken advantage of due to the specificities of modern copyright law. These stories have informed how we view music ownership today, leaving artists to fight for their rights, their copyrights. I'm Sam. And I'm Max. And this is Arts Interrupted. The Michigan Daily's premier arts and culture talking about artistic ownership, we unfortunately have to mention NFTs. I know, I know, it's what every dude bro and their dude bro dad is talking about, but it's worth talking about, I promise. A brief primer for those who don't know, NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, are one-of-a-kind digital art pieces. Non-fungible is basically just saying that they're unique. One NFT is entirely a different value than the next, making it all the more confusing. Like, a dollar, for example, is fungible, meaning $1 equals $1. One NFT does not equal the next NFT. And right now, NFTs are being purchased in a way similar to art collecting. Purchasing a Jake Paul video is like purchasing a Monet, or so the internet tells me. 
But wait, you ask, can I just go watch that Jake Paul video whenever I want? Well, if you wanted to annoy yourself, sure, of course. It's on YouTube, it's free to view. So what's the point of owning it? The NFT crazed folks will say it's the difference between owning a Monet or owning a poster of a Monet. But it's most definitely not. When you're seeing the video on YouTube, you're viewing the original. You just don't own the original. The NFT discussion is important in considering creative ownership. What does it mean to own something when it can be perfectly reproduced an infinite amount of times with no legal kickback? Is it worth owning at all? NFTs are just bragging rights, plain and simple. Not worth my hypothetical Bitcoin, but web bros are going to do what web bros are going to do. Way, way back in the day when iTunes ruled the world, downloading MP3s was the primary source of owning music as a listener. Originally, MP3s went for 99 cents, then $1.29, and artists were paid a portion of every purchase. Anyone could purchase an MP3 online, yet you could also get your hands on a song by other means, thankful to peer-to-peer -peer sharing. LimeWire, FrostWire, MewWire, Napster, and many more. All of these websites serve the same purpose. Users could upload their own files online to be downloaded by anyone who has access to the website. Anyone could upload and download music illegally without paying for copyright fees. Not only did this cause a plethora of legal issues, but it ultimately morphed the future of music purchasing and ownership today. Oh, how could we forget the Metallica vs. Napster case, where the rock band was able to remove all of their copyrighted music from the peer-to-peer -peer software Napster. This was the first case that highlighted how tricky and confusing copyright was for law enforcement. Users could purchase an mp3 and then put it on a peer-to-peer -peer website. Conceptually, they were just sharing a song that they technically owned, virtually burning it onto the internet. But on the other hand, artists felt as though they were stealing from them and taking potential profit away. Max, that reminds me of Martin Shkreli, the former hedge fund manager and convicted felon who bought an entire Wu-Tang Clan album. The LP was called Shaolin, and they only made one copy of the album, and it was burned to some super fancy CD that sold at auction for two million bucks. As of today, it's never seen the light of day. Not even close to the scummiest thing that guy has done, but still I consider it pretty horrible to deprive the world of another Wu-Tang album. Ultimately, the music industry found that combating music piracy was a losing battle. Companies realized that piracy was largely a convenience issue in the information age, and now, with the legal precedent having been set that piracy legal battles were, at the very least, very hard to fight, companies needed to find a way to allow users convenience while still generating revenue in some way. These companies ultimately found a marginally reasonable way to accomplish this with streaming music. While streaming music is certainly a very convenient consumption method for the music listener, it can often lead to problems when it comes to artists actually getting paid. Artists get paid roughly 0.005 cents per stream, with only 70% of overall revenue going to the artist. Many artists argue that this is ridiculously low, and Spotify should reduce their cut. However, very little progress has been made on this front. The other major problem is that streams can be botted, wherein a person uploads music to Spotify and hires bots to generate songs with millions and millions of streams before Spotify detects them, acquiring a big payout. While this blatantly steals from artists, Spotify has very little incentive to rectify the issue, as, well, to them it doesn't really matter what's being streamed, only the fact that something is being streamed in the first place, as that's what garners them revenue. It's crazy how often you hear massive artists like Lord or Adele complaining about this, when in reality, it's often much smaller artists who get hurt the worst by this as proportionally they make much, much less. In many ways, it's horrible that artists have to fight tooth and nail to get compensated for their work. 
But the circumstances get even worse for artists when you consider that they often have to defend their ownership over their own creative material. Arguably the most recent famous example of debate over creative ownership is the Taylor Swift Scooter Braun case. For the uninformed, talent manager Scooter Braun and Swift's former record label Big Red Machine wouldn't allow Swift to purchase her masters or the first recordings of her songs. This means every time someone plays a Taylor Swift song on any streaming service or purchases any of her music, Braun and Big Red Machine make money. Braun then sold Swift's masters to a Disney-owned holdings company for $300 million. In order to recoup her work, Swift began re-recording and releasing her first six albums. Swift began writing and performing her own music young and is considered one of the greatest songwriters of the century. She knows what she's worth and she wants to own her legacy, thus changing the status quo for rising artists. Taylor Swift protege Olivia Rodrigo cited Swift as her inspiration when she negotiated her own record deal. Rodrigo insisted on having full ownership of her masters, which was only possible due to her credit as songwriter on the tracks. Speaking of Rodrigo, she comes up when we consider sampling. According to my favorite source, Wikipedia, sampling is the reuse of a portion of a sound recording in another recording. If you, like me, listened to Sour nonstop when it came out and consider yourself a Swifty, you'll remember fans complaining Swift wasn't credited on the song Deja Vu, as the bridge was similar to Swift's song Cruel Summer. Rodrigo addressed the controversy by crediting Swift and her fellow writers Jack Antonoff and Annie Clark, aka St. Vincent. She did the same thing when fans likened Rodrigo's track Good For You to Paramore's Misery Business. By giving Paramore and the Cruel Summer team writing credit, Rodrigo was giving up potentially millions of dollars. Sampling is a tricky and often expensive business. There's a finite combination of notes, sounds, and chords out there. Things are bound to cross-contaminate. However, in the time of the internet where fans are rabid and observant, the definition of sampling is getting looser and wider. Because Rodrigo's song sounds a bit like another song, she then has to give money to another artist. It's confusing to think about where one song ends and the other begins. Where one song gives credit to another and where they just sound similar. But what happens when you, as an artist, are sampled into obscurity? Let's talk about the famous Amen break. In 1969, the soul band The Winstons recorded their now-famous hit Amen, an original B-side track single that barely made a sound in the early 70s. Yet, what made this track later stand out amongst others in their catalog was none other than the four-bar drum break performed by Gregory Coleman. With the rise of hip-hop, drum breaks were being pulled from older records constantly to be used as loops under raps. This is where Amen got to shine. Its perfectly syncopated beat, full of energy, lends itself greatly to the genre and quickly could be found everywhere in the mid to late 80s hip-hop and rap. Continuing to be sampled to this day, it is the most sampled track of all time, with about 5,000 tracks by 2021, according to whosampled.com. Unaware of its success until 1996, Coleman called the sampling plagiarism, claiming that he deserved royalties. Coleman continued struggling decades after the track's peak to acquire royalties. However, he could not grasp its treasure, and eventually died homeless in 2006. What feels like a beautiful compromise between music ownership and art appreciation is the music ecosystem Bandcamp. 
Bandcamp has been known for giving smaller music artists an online home in the 21st century. Here, artists have the ability to set their own prices for digital downloads, MB3s, vinyls, and CDs. It has preserved the retro music ownership sensibilities by putting artists in the driver's seat, instead of the number of streams their music generates. Here, at Arts Interrupted, we don't expect you to go out and pay the full price for someone's LP on Bandcamp, as most of us are college students and can barely afford to live on campus. But we think it's important to direct your attention to putting a little bit of your coin towards your favorite musicians, to show them the love they deserve. Well, that's all for today's episode, folks. This season, look out for new weekly content alongside some spicy interviews. I've been Max Schaubel, the senior editor of Arts Interrupted. Our executive producer, my boss, is Max Rosenzweig. Our content producers are Sam Goldenberg and Cole McCarthy. And our audio producers are Ben Schreier and Chris Brown. Peace. <laughs>